we humble ourselves before your throne of grace. And this is this is what we're supposed to do. We was evidently called and led to do this today because people have problems and things upon their hearts. And so everything that's been mentioned up to this point, Father, you've taken note of. And we pray emphatically for that fervently for you. And also now for Chuck. Chuck's been going through some things and some rough struggles, Father. And we, we pray for him and we pray that your hand of healing and strength would continue to be upon him. Pray that you will bless him in many ways, Father. Allow him to continue to be a servant of yours and a light to those that are around him. And a message of hope and the gospel. And Father, we pray this and pray my, my brother Eddie this morning had texted me, Eddie Edwards, and he's got sciatica. And I pray him along with these prayers for his healing and strength and, and recovery, Father. And for everyone who has an issue right now, but they're just not saying it. And you know who they are. And I know they're still here because I can feel it. So, Father, I pray for each and every soul that's here today. We are family, and that's why we take a moment not only to praise you and worship you whenever you do mighty things, but we, we humble ourselves as a family together to join united in prayer for each and every soul because we are family. We are your children, and we bring all of these things to you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. We had another message of healing right here. Jennifer got healed, didn't you? She had surgery on her throat to remove some things, and she's doing good now, too. So God bless you with that. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Spiritual victory comes to those who are prepared for the battle. And, you know, I was thinking... I always pray over the congregation during one or two of the songs before, before we come up. And I was standing there, bowed in prayer for y'all, and to praise God for the message and Him to be glorified and honored today, and for y'all to be edified. Lord, prepare me. I just had to start chuckling. Spiritual victory comes to those who are prepared for the battle. We are being prepared to be the sanctuary of God, to hold that word within us. And that was, that's the message today and next week. And there, there you go. Every week, the Lord confirms things, that how he's working to edify this body of Christ together in unity and growth in his spirit. And in praising and worshiping him. And so if we're here today. There's folks that need saved. The trump did not sound. For the Lord to come and to return. So we're here today. Because there's work still to do. And part of that work. Is to prepare ourselves. So that we can go to them. And be there for them. There's battles that's going to come. I, I, I see more battles coming, but not only that, it doesn't have to be this nation or this world. We face a battle every day spiritually. Battles are close to home and with families, and crises are there, let alone 
with everything that else that goes on with this life. Last week, we began learning a doctrine. We began learning about the laws of blessing and cursing with God and with five cycles of discipline that he uses upon nations and peoples to just like a father that chastises his child so that they will do what's best for them. That's what these things are planned to do to get us to realize where we are at so that we will return and do what is supposed to be for our benefit in praising him and not getting ourselves in trouble with that. And God gave us the law of blessing that said in Leviticus 26 that for those who will follow me and love me, if you love my word, my commandments, my judgments, you know, they're not the ten commandments, so to speak. They didn't look at the, the Jewish people didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as the ten lessons of love. That if God loves me so much, he's sharing the things that I can do to be blessed and to not harm myself because each one of those things only ends up harming us. And so if you want to live a long and happy life, these are the things that you do. And they were not commandments and, oh, I can't stand that. They are God's love directed to us. And he says, when you walk in these things, I will bless you with prosperity or, or economically. I provide food and substance. I give you peace instead of fear. I, I rid the land of evil. I provide protection and I honor my covenant with you. But then on the other hand, he says that when, and we're going to see it in a mention in a couple other spots today, that when, when you as a person, because it always begins with me and my house, when you as a person and when the nation as a whole and when peoples and cities and states, when they turn from me and they walk away, then I apply pressure, divine discipline to try to get you to realize the error of your way and to bring you back into my arms and into my fold. And I start with like I can appoint terror and fear in the land, pestilence and disease and enemies and you will sow your crops and somebody else will will reap it. Uh, I can break your pride and your power. I can turn the heavens like iron and the earth like bronze. You will work and labor in vain. I will rob you of different things. Areas will be desolate. There, war, when, once you start getting into like step four, you start to get war and other people ruling over you. And then step five gets to desolation. And we don't even want to go there. That last step. So when cities are laid waste and, and evil things happen. We saw all of those things. God wants us to be blessed and not cursed. But the thing that we know is at any point and any step in any of those things. That God says when you realize the error of the way. And you with a humble heart return unto me. At any point in time during that. You turn and pray and ask for forgiveness. And I turn now those cursings into blessings. I begin as Romans 8.28 says. That I can work all things together for good to those who love the Lord. So even though I got myself into a pickle. Now I pray and ask for forgiveness. As it says in 1 John chapter 1. And please that's on our list today as a Berean chapter. Read that. 
all of us have sinned. If we say no sin, we're just lying to ourselves if we say we don't do that. But God says that if you will walk in the light as I am in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from our sins. So in other words, when we walk in that light, even though we are doing some things wrong that we fall into and even things we don't know, the blood's continually cleansing us. But when we willfully walk away and we willfully do those things, we have to repent. And when we do, God says this in chapter 1, verse 9. If you will confess that fault before me, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And at that point, all you, we still may have to pay for some of the things that we've done in a physical realm, but spiritually... God begins to work all of those things now to bless us in a way and to grow us in those things. And so, and he will remember his covenant with us and with our land. And I'm going to skip on down here to uh, get going in this. We're real close today to some things that happen. But each and every heart. And soul has things that happens in life all the time. So today I want to give you some food, some manna from heaven for the crises in life. Whether they're personal, whether they're family, whether they're national. How are we going to withstand the crisis? How do you, how do you, how do you prepare yourself to be that sanctuary and for God to be able to, to use you? Well, let's, let's take this out. What happens the, the way I'm going first is with the nation. We've been doing that. Because we've said it begins at home, but when home after home turns away from God, then the whole nation starts to receive some of this discipline. So what happens whenever God begins to reach his hand out and to, to show us that divine discipline? Are we going to be ready for it? How are we going to be able to withstand? What would happen if... A different regime comes in, whether it's foreign or domestic. A coup takes place and this nation no longer operates the way that we've known it to do. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to react? What is going to happen? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And our story begins with a man named Daniel. And it starts around 606 B.C. And it's just as pertinent today for us as it was in 606 B.C. 606 B.C., there was a battle that was raging. This battle was going on all the way over at the Euphrates River, all the way over towards Iran. And along that river, there's Babylon over there, and there was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He was at war with the Egyptians. Pharaoh Necho, a very powerful man from a powerful country of Egypt at that time, had come all the way over there, and there was a battle. They wanted to destroy Babylon. And he had a secret weapon. And the battle of Carchemish is famous because of one reason. Oh, it's recorded well in history. They've got all the carvings and the plaques of all of the, the when they had the war was over and how they documented it. You can Google it and you can see all of the different plaques. But it's famous because they, the Egyptians and Pharaoh Necho brought lions. They had caged lions from Africa that they had put in all of these cages. And they took Barnum and Bailey on steroids all the way over to the Euphrates River. I mean, they had, their idea was we're going to turn these lions loose on them. 
and it'll ravage the army, and then we will go in and mop it up, and we will rule over Babylon. So they brought this train load of, of uh, lions over to Euphrates. The battle at Carchemish happened. They, they had them on the ropes, they had them cornered, and they released all of the lions, and the lions pounced out, and they started coming after those warriors of the Chaldeans. But you know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He said, guys... Tighten your ranks. Everybody make a big circle and everybody stick their spears out. And so we're, we're shoulder to shoulder. People right behind me in between my shoulder and theirs. And the spears were all out. When those lions came in, they were spearing them and jabbing them. And the lions put on the brakes. And you know what they did? They turned around and said, the Egyptians are easier feed than what these guys are. So the lions turned on the people who had captured them in the, and brought them all the way over here. And those lions went after them and they started fleeing. And as they were being ate and fled, the, the Nebuchadnezzar and his troops said charge. And they went after them with their spears. And they were chasing the Egyptians all the way back over to Egypt. And as they were chasing them, Nebuchadnezzar looks over and there's a beautiful city on a hill. And he's like, what is that? And his men said, I don't know. And he says, send a detachment and go see what that is over there. And they went over and they looked and they came back. And they said, that is called Jerusalem. The home of the King David where he had been. Nebuchadnezzar reigns it in. Whoa, I like that city. I want that city. He, he sends a point of men to continue chasing the Egyptians so that they don't go back. And they chased them all the way back to Egypt. But then he took his main forces and he set them up around Jerusalem. And then he sent messengers in that says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is saying this to you. Well, it was the king's son at the time. His dad was very ill and he has to leave now to go back because his dad's passing away and he has to take the throne. But he sent that uh, messengers there and said he wants you you can either come peacefully or we will take it by force your choice and the leaders looked out there at these fierce warriors of the Chaldeans and they were like hmm we're chicken we're going to go ahead and give ourselves we're not going to trust in God we're going to give ourselves up to these guys and what they didn't know, they didn't have a choice because we're going to find out God was giving them over to Nebuchadnezzar because they had quit walking with him. So they said, okay, we will be your vessels. In other words, he said, I'll leave you a king here. I'll leave one of your guys in charge, but you're still under my rule. And you'd better not go to Egypt for help because I just chased them back. And you'd better serve me and not revolt. Because if you do, uh, I want 50 of your brightest, youngest people. And they said, okay, we'll pick. And he goes, uh-uh, you ain't picking. I want the people of your royal lineage. I want the king's sons and nephews. I want the people of royalty. And I'm taking 50 of them back with me because that way I've got them hostage. I'm going to train them in my ways to serve me and to be great people if you follow in my footsteps and under my reign but if you decide that you want to revolt against me it ain't going to be good for your royal relatives 
So this is how he used a bargaining chip to keep them as a vassal underneath of him. In 606 B.C., Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and 46 other young men are bound up. And they now are on the way to Babylon. I want to ask you a question. What do you do when your world crushes like that? What do you do when God has given your nation over to someone else and they come in and say, I'm taking your young ones or I am taking you? Are you prepared? Are you ready for the spiritual battle that's getting ready to take place? I, I asked Google, how far is it from Jerusalem to Babylon? And it said it's 1,676 miles. And I thought, that's a long way. How far is it from Indianapolis to Mesa, Arizona? 1,680 miles. So it's the equivalent, basically mile for mile, from here to Mesa, Arizona. But you don't have an air-conditioned car You've got camels, donkeys, and feet. And so it took 60 days for them to get at marching 20 to 25 miles a day to get from Jerusalem all the way back over to Babylon. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if it's your young ones that they say we're taking them away from you and we're taking them 1,600 miles away on foot a 60-day journey at that time, and they're gone, and you don't have a choice, and you're going to obey me or else. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because if you try to revolt at that time, they'll take you and them. So are you prepared? Are our kids prepared? Are they ready? What if it was me, and you're taking me away from there? Am I prepared? You know what? We have to be prepared for a crisis, whether it's something like that or it's something within my family or myself. I have to have a bomb shelter in my soul to be prepared. How do you prepare for something like that? I'm glad you asked because that's what we're going to look at. The first thing that you have to do and what we're going to find out, the book of Daniel is written not to give us all of these prophecies and all of these things that are going on. That's just candy on top the reason that the book of Daniel is written to show you what it takes to survive a crisis what it takes for your life to be blessed what it takes to be a winner and not a loser because there's going to be some winners and losers in this you want to be a winner then you want to be like Daniel how did Daniel become a winner he was only between 16 and 18 years old whenever this happened and they come and took him and said I'm taking you away from home from family from worship from everything that you're familiar with and that you love and I'm taking you and I'm taking you somewhere else and it's only you and a couple of other young kids and no one else that you know or love is going how do you prepare for something like that and how do you deal with it and that's what the book of Daniel is written for us. Because God knows that we need to apply the same things. And I'll tell you what it begins with. It begins with what we've been talking about. The bomb shelter in your soul. I call it the edification complex of the soul. But what it is, is you have to take in the word of God all the time. 
There is nothing stronger than the word of God. And without that in your heart, you don't have a defense for those kind of things when a crisis comes to your life. You take it in, you take it in, you lose some, but some sticks. It's about like a sponge. I soak up some, but a lot goes out. But over time of that constant intake, you start building a foundation and a bomb shelter within you to where you can withstand those things. And then you get what's called a frame of reference. Whenever your mind is now filled and saturated with the promises of the word of God, it begins to build a frame of reference for every situation that happens. Whenever something happens, I take that word and use it to say this is what God says and this is how I'm supposed to deal with it and when I can use the word of God as a frame of reference for every crisis or joy that happens within my life now I'm getting somewhere I've got to have a frame of reference readily available and that takes intake 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 putting it inside of me Loving the word of God. And then you build an edification complex to where nothing can get on you. So Daniel is going there with these other 49 young men. I want you to hear what, uh, what the word of God says about Daniel. You got to go to Ezekiel to know about Daniel. So if you want to turn to Ezekiel 14, I'm going to be there in a second. But in, his, in the book of Ezekiel... Ezekiel is alive and he's God's man, the prophet, at the same time that Daniel is alive. They are contemporaries. They're within a couple of years old of each other. And he is writing the same time. And what he says in 13, in chapter 13 leading up to this, he says some, some uh, wild things. You know what he says? He says, the prophets in, in chapter 13, he says, you guys are honoring the creature more than the creator. Oh, we're going to get to that sometime soon in Romans 1. I've told you about that. We got a New Testament example for these Old Testament examples in Romans chapter 1. And it begins with, whenever you should have known about God, you rejected God and you started serving the creature more than the creator. And then problems start happening and multiplying. He's saying the same thing back here in Ezekiel 13. You've been worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And you've heaped up to yourself Bible teachers. You've heaped up the people that you want to call your prophets. And they are telling you all kinds of things. Everything is peace, peace, prosperity. All you have to do is this. You don't have to worry about the word of God and his statutes and his ordinances and the way he wants you to live. You don't have to worry about all of those things because we are just children of God. And God has always blessed Israel or America. And we've never had to worry about anything. So everything's going to keep on being okay. Don't worry about it. We can let it go. And God says, really? Are you serious? You really think that I operate that way? That, that 
You can do whatever you want to, and then you turn to me when a crisis comes like a genie in a bottle, and you can rub my little belly and say, Lord, bless me with this. Lord, take care of this crisis. Lord, do this for me. And then you want it to be microwaved like that, and then you go on your merry way of rejecting me again, and you think that I am going to respond to you. The Word of God says in, in, in that chapter 13, the prophets who are supposed to speak for me to guide you in truth instead, they turn you loose on all of the lusts of the flesh that you want to do and have. They teach falsehood. Instead, but they will tell you all of those things are thus saith the Lord. They tell you they're speaking for me whenever they're speaking for thine. And I'm telling you something, they don't speak for me. And then you still think I will come and protect you? You think, now here's the word of God. You think that people can do anything they please and I won't mind it. That you can remove me and prayer from schools and you still think everything's all right. You can remove me and my Ten Commandments from your buildings and say they are not allowed in here. And yet you think I think it's all right and I'm still just going to bless you. I, I saw somebody wearing a shirt yesterday that, that said, or two days ago, it was a shirt that says, Lord, why is there so much violence in the schools? And it says, because I'm no longer allowed in there. <laughs> so, you think it's okay to rid me from schools, to rid me from your places of law. You, in the courthouse, they used to post that. Now they say remove them. It offends people. And we surely can't offend people. But yet I want to turn to the Lord. Oh, we can take the medical establishment and turn away from God and murder 60 million babies. And yet you still want to turn to me and say everything's all right. I don't think so. The Lord says, you are not speaking for me. These things are not going to happen. We remove God from every platform, political, medical, religious. You, you mention it. And God says, you've removed me, but yet you think it's all right? Uh -uh. I am not going to listen to you. The word of God actually says, should I let myself even be inquired of you at all for this. In other words, you think you even have a right to pray to me and inquire of me to help you? If you're there with me, go into chapter 14. This is what it says as we get into chapter 14 as it, as it starts out. Ezekiel says, there's some elders of Israel that comes in. You know what that means? Daniel has just been taken away. They've all been just threatened. And the leaders who have been listening to all these other cats, all these other birds with this stuff that was false, but saying they spoke for the Lord, now all of a sudden they're thinking maybe Ezekiel has been teaching the truth because some of those things came about. So now, as a last resort, isn't that the way sometimes we are? As a last resort, we start turning it over to the Lord. As a last resort, these elders go in to the uh, Bible class of Ezekiel because what's going to happen next? They took these guys. Are, what's going to happen to us? 
is something else is more chips about ready to fall. So they get into Bible class with Ezekiel. And Ezekiel looks out there and he sees all these guys in Bible class that normally ain't been in Bible class. Who's normally been there was Daniel. And he says, uh-oh, Lord, what kind of message am I supposed to have for these guys? You know, it says the word of the Lord came to Daniel. And the word of the Lord came, or came to Ezekiel. And he says, should I even allow myself? Look here at verse 8. Son of man, this is the word of God. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Whenever you have taken and removed me out of the way and you've put up the things that you want to do and say you're speaking for me, you're wrong. You've put up idols in your hearts when you have done that. And these men that are coming to your Bible class have idols in their hearts. They're not really here to change who they are. They're just wondering what's going to happen, and they're not wanting it to happen to them. So they're trying to look good, and they're trying to figure out something's going to happen. But I want you to tell them, thus saith the Lord. Not the folks that say they speak for me, but thus saith the Lord. Should I even let myself be inquired of you? You ain't here under the right purposes. And he's going to go on to say, tell them you got idols in your heart. If you will remove those idols in your heart and come and seek me, I will hear and I will listen. But as long as you can come here and inquire of me, but you still have those idols in your heart and you're not really after me, don't even think I'm going to listen to you and pay attention. But if you will remove those things from your heart and you will truly come to seek me, then I will begin to listen and I will begin to change and I will begin to respond to you. Now, but not until then. You got to repent and turn away from those things. And you, these things are coming so that you will know that I am the Lord God. And then if you're following along and you go down to about verse 12, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, when a land... Now see, Ezekiel's by himself now. The class is over. And so the word of the Lord came to him again. He says, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. Now, I'm going to read that one again. Because we just talked about all that we've been doing, ain't we? Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch my hand out against it. I will cut off your supply of bread. I can send the famine. I can cut off people. I can, I can do a lot of things. And it can get so bad. And look at verse 14. That even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, even if these three men were in it, they wouldn't be able to save anyone but themselves by their own righteousness. through, And that means because they are serving God, they are born again, says the Lord. Ezekiel knows David, or I mean uh, Daniel, because he's been in Bible class. He's now gone, but he says, I want you to tell the folks, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, 
They wouldn't be able to do anything but try to save themselves. Desolation's going to come to pass, even though if only in verse 16, these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they could deliver not their sons or their daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. If I bring the sword and I bring war in through the land, those, those three men were in it, as thus saith the Lord, they wouldn't be able to deliver anyone but themselves. Verse 19, if I send a pestilence to the land, I pour out my fury all the way out to blood and cut off man and beast. Verse 20, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord, it'll be so bad that they will only deliver themselves, neither son nor daughter, but only themselves. So God's making a sobering promise here, isn't it? And I think he's trying to make it perfectly clear that when a land continually, willfully sins against me, I have to stretch my hand against it. If not, I am not just and righteous. If I did it to Sodom and Gomorrah, if I did it in Noah's day in the flood, then I have to continue to do it or I am not just and I am not righteous. I have put these things out here. I will stretch my hand if you persist in your unfaithfulness. And it will be so bad that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there in it, they're barely going to make it themselves, let alone everyone else. And so my question is, why are these three men mentioned there like that? Four times in particular, but name by name, forward and backwards, on the top half and the bottom. Why does he say Noah, Daniel, and Job? And why is it in that order? I mean, Noah is a thousand years before that. He's on one side. Genesis 6, it goes all the way back. On the other side is Job. That's, he's a contemporary of around either Nimrod and Abraham's time. They are all at the same time. So Genesis 10, 11, and 12. That's the other one. That's the oldest book in the Bible as far as, as when it was written, Job. But now you stick a contemporary modern-day teenager in between these two guys. Why, why is Daniel in between Noah and Job? It's because those two men survived crises. And there's a reason why they survived it. And there's a reason why Daniel is going to survive this crisis. And that's what we need to find out. Noah survived a crisis of the entire world. And the flood came. Job, that's like a national and a world crisis. Job, things went on in the world, but his world crashed, didn't it? His was personal. He lost 10 kids in one day. He lost all of his animals and crops in one day. He lost all of his servants that he loved and was of his household in one day. And then, whenever Satan went up and was standing before the Lord again, and the Lord said, do you see my faithful servant Job? And the devil says, yeah, but you've placed a hedge of protection around him. No wonder he still serves you. You had blessed him, but now you didn't even touch him. You, you touched his family, but you didn't touch him. You let me have him, and you'll watch. He'll curse you. And God said, you got him except for his life. Don't take his life. You know what the most painful thing you can do is? Is to have 
rotting, stinking, cancerous sores all over the nerve endings of your body. If you've ever had a bad case of shingles and you know what it, it can do to a nerve ending in one spot, you imagine it from the top of your head to the tip of your toes and you've got oozing, pussing, cancerous things attacking your nervous system. I'm sure Satan got together with his minions and said, we got him except for killing him. How can we put him in the most pain possible? And they said, all these nerve endings, if you attack all of those, oh, he'll be in so much pain. And so he said, let's go at him. And it got so bad that Job is at his burn pile where they burned all of their wood and their trash and their different... He's in an ash heap. And he goes to his ash heap and he's sitting there trying to put those ashes on those sores and stop that seeping. And it gets so painful that he finds broken pieces of pottery and he's scraping that stuff off trying to find some kind of relief. You want to know how Job makes it through a crisis? And how Noah makes it through a crisis? Same way Daniel is going to make it through a crisis. And folks, I'm telling you, it's the same way we make it through a crisis. It's by constant intake of the word of God and building around you a bomb shelter of the soul with promises that you can, that you can hang on to. You don't believe me? That's exactly what they did. They were prepared before it happened. And God is going to see them through it. You know, in chapter 13 of Ezekiel, if you're still right there, if you look on down there, in the chapter before 14 where we're at now, where it's talking about these three men, it says, these people, when they say that they are speaking for me and they're not, they're building their house and they're building their walls of protection around them. You're, the edification complex that you're supposed to be building around you is that bomb shelter. They are using untempered concrete, untempered mortar. You know what that means? It's basically... A plaster sand mixture that when the next rainstorm comes gets washed down. You've put this stuff together and said I'm slapping on the mortar but it's not tempered. You know what, it, you know what tempering is? It says in Hebrews chapter 4. Just like all of the people that went before and their carcasses fell. It says because the promises of the word of God was not mixed with faith. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. If you don't take the promises in, and you don't mix it with faith, you don't have concrete, you've got plaster that's going to fall apart because you didn't mix it with faith. He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder, of those who diligently seek him. You have to mix it with faith. How do you get faith? Faith comes by. And hearing. By the word of God. You have to mix faith. Which is the hearing of the word of God. Over and over and over. And mixing with faith. Makes concrete. And it makes a barrier. Between the crisis and you, it has to be mixed with faith. What does it say? Since Noah is the person that God put in there to Ezekiel to give us the demonstration, what does the word of God say about Noah? The great chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. 
it says this. That's where it starts out about what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things that you don't even see. By faith, all of these things happen. By faith, we know that the worlds were framed by the hand and the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But then it says there in verse 6, without faith, without that true belief, not just that I've heard the promise, but I believe it, without faith it is impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Take example number one, my man Noah. Noah, when he heard the word of God, there's going to be a flood was what he heard. When he was divinely told what was going to happen, did he sit around and say, okay, I believe it and do nothing? No, he mixed it with faith and made concrete. It says when he was divinely warned of the thing that was not yet seen that's not going to happen for 120 years from now, but he moved with fear today and began building that ark. Why? For the preparation the preparation for the time when you need it. It's not today that you just pick up the Bible when you're in a crisis. That don't work. You prepare. You build. You mix. He spent 120 years working every day preparing the thing that was going to save him when the crisis came. How are you going to be ready when the crisis comes? You prepare every day. He worked, says, he moved with fear, preparing the ark for the saving of himself and his family. You know what? It might get so bad, he saved his family. But Ezekiel says it's going to get so bad. You know about Noah. He saved him and his family. But there's going to be some times when you're on your own. Ain't going to be, he, it says they wouldn't be able to save their sons and their daughters, but only themselves. There comes a time, what did we say whenever we was praying? It just now hit me. It's like the Lord's thumping me on the head. What did we say when we was praying there that you can only be responsible for who? Though these three men were in it, they could only save who? Themselves. We've got to, as we train our family, we've got to train them to be ready themselves too. Not just, sometimes I'm not going to be Noah and my ark saves the family. Sometimes my family gets taken away from me like Daniel does and they got to be ready to stand. Maybe I go to meet the Lord early. They got to stand without you. You got to be prepared. You got to have them prepared and you take it in. By faith he moved on things not even seen. And he prepared that ark for the saving of his family. He rescued them. Job, what happens to him? He's sitting there. He's by himself in an ash heap. He's lost everything. He is by himself. And he's scraping that stuff off of him. And his so-called friends come and they start chastising him. They start saying things about him. Making him mad, saying things about his family, and this happened to you because of this and that. No, he said, it's not. See, you're only responsible for yourself and not what everyone else says about you. And as he was doing that, you know what he says? He had the word of God stored up, and he was prepared for the crisis when it came. And when people were saying that, and he says, I'm going to tell you something. I know. What's knowledge? The word that is within you and ready to be extracted. 
when you know something, it's there. It's your frame of reference. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he is able to make me be able to be with him in that day when he comes to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, whether it's the day of the crisis or the day that I go on to meet with him. I know my Redeemer lives, and he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And he says, I know, again, knowledge inside of you, I know that my Redeemer will come, and he will once again be here, and that I will be with him. And when you look to those things and those promises, it creates the barrier between you and the crisis because your mind is fixed and set and purposed on the promises mixed with faith instead of fear and instead of what is facing me. Faith becomes more real than what is before me. That is how you prepare for the crisis and that's how you meet the crisis and become a winner instead of a loser those you prepared and put in the word of God in your heart what did those men who came into Ezekiel's Bible class have in their heart idols you're either going to have an idol in your heart or you're going to have the word of God in your heart if you got the word of God and you're prepared and you're purposed and you're set you're ready if you don't, you're going to be the loser, just like they were. And now, that, comes, that brings us all the way back. You know, after we talked there in Hebrews 11 about Noah, the very next, it gives you another list. You know who's in that list as it went on down through chapter 11? Daniel. Daniel is in the list of faithful along with a lot of them. It says some of them was cast into lions, and some of them was, was killed, and some of them was, did this. And then, you know what it says in the next verse? Because there wasn't chapter breaks. The next verse comes up with chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, therefore means you take all of those examples of faith, and what does that mean? Well, you apply them to you. Therefore, since we also are surrounded, who's Dan what's around Daniel? He's surrounded by the witness of great men of God who had the word of God as their background, wasn't he? As examples, they were his crutches. He was lifted up and surrounded by the examples that he read about from Job and Noah. And he was buoyed by that in his captivity. And it says this, since we also are going to face crises in our life, we also, if you will take all of this in, you will be surrounded by all of these great witnesses for you to rely upon in your life when the crisis hits. And you have a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, lay aside every weight and the sins that so easily besets us and ensnares us. And we run this race of life that is set before us, held up by this crowd of faithful witnesses that are around us. And then we look unto... And we fix and set our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Because 
All of these witnesses lead to the one faithful witness. We're going to talk about him next week. To the one faithful witness. The scripture, I'm going to even give you a teaser. The scripture we're going to talk about next week is he set his face toward Jerusalem. He had a crisis that he was getting ready to meet in Jerusalem called a cross. And before that, everything that goes on before the cross. So you know what he had to do? He had to fix and set his mind upon Jerusalem. Can't let nothing else get in the way of what you've got to do. So we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses We're not going to be ashamed because we're going to rightly divide that word of truth and not be ashamed. We're going to study and take it in and we're going to be like Noah and Daniel and Job. And now before we close, I'm going to give you another teaser because this is another one of those to be continued next week. Daniel chapter 1. Go there with me. I'm just going to give you a teaser of what we're going to break that entire chapter down. But it's going to start like this. Daniel 1.1 beginning. See, the battle of Carchemish and the lions has happened. Nebuchadnezzar's running back across there chasing him. He looks over and what's that? They come back and say, that's Jerusalem. He says, I want it. Go tell them that we're going to besiege it. They can either come friendly or fiercely. How do they want me? And they come back. And this is what it says at that point, at that exact point. Daniel 1.1. In the third year... In the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem from chasing the Egyptians and the lions back to Egypt, and he besieged it. And the Lord gave, now I want you to circle that in your Bible, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and he took the articles of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar. Shinar is the land where Nimrod was. See, we're going all the way back to Job's time. To the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure of the house of his God. And the king then, Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. You see, they're all the nobles and the king's descendants and royalty. These young men in whom there was no blemish, and they were good looking, and they were gifted in wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, and he had the ability to serve in the king's palace for him. Then it says they're going to teach him their language and their literature and teach him how to be Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of his delicacies. He's brainwashing. The brainwashing begins. The wine which he drank and the food that he ate Three years they're going to train them up and brainwash them so at the end of that time they might serve before the king. And now from among those of the sons of Judah, that's a descendant of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David. The descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuch, he gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, he called him Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel, though, 
Underline this in your Bibles. Verse 8. This is where we're going next week with Jesus also. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor the wine that he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. You know how you survive a crisis? You get blessed by God. You know how you get blessed by God? You have faith. You've took it in. And then you purpose in your heart. You've got to set up that barrier. I am going to make a purpose that I won't let it defile me. No matter what they throw at me, I'm not going to let it defile me. And I got a purpose in my heart. Jesus had to set his face towards Jerusalem. You're going to survive the crisis one way or another, either in life or death. Whenever you purpose in your heart. You know how you purpose in your heart? You already got to have that stuff in your heart. You got to have the word mixed with faith. And it creates the concrete barrier that you can now purpose not to be defiled in those things. So next week we'll continue. Come on up, praise team. Let's give all praise and glory to God as we get ready to close out. And the secret to Noah, Daniel, and Job was laid out in verse 8. You have to have a purpose in your heart not to be defiled. you got to know the word to know what to do to not be defiled, don't you? Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would only be able to save themselves. Sometimes we're on our own. Sometimes... We are saving our family. But one thing stands out. Every single time I open the word of God. It's how important the word of God is for me to be able to handle any single situation that I have in life. And when I forget that. And when I go without that. Then I go into panic palace instead of my concrete bunker. I have to purpose within my heart that I will not set up idols in there. And I will throw those things out. Job made it, Noah made it through their literal and physical and even actual storms because they purposed in their heart and they set their minds and they mixed it with faith and they did it. Next week, we're going to mix all of this up together with the Day of Atonement and and what that means for us. And as we, as we close, there's also always the invitation that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've, if you've been here this day and you've heard the word of God and you say, you know what, I, I need that and I want to be a part of it. I, I've got to start building this, but the first thing that happens to, to take in the word of God and to build that is you've got to know Jesus. And then he, whenever you're baptized into Christ, you believe in him as the son of God. And by faith, You believe. And by faith, Jesus said, when you do this, I want you to make a confession of me. and I want you to be baptized in me. And in Acts 2, it says that when you do that, I give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's where you start to get that bomb shelter again. Because the Spirit makes known the things to you of the Word of God in a spiritual way. And He begins to build those things within you. And now you have a helper, just like Jesus did whenever He was tempted in the desert. If you have not done those things... Please come this day and do it. Today's the day to begin doing that. We don't know when the crisis is going to happen in our life. The rest of us, let's purpose in our heart from this day forward 
to continue to work on taking in that word of God every day and building that bomb shelter so that one day, whenever the crisis comes, we have a purpose, we have a plan, and we will not be overtaken, we will not be overcome. Let's pray. Father, may we be challenged by what we've heard today. Your word is impeccable. Your word is holy and it is truth and it is the one thing that we have with us now that will live and abide forever. It is the most powerful thing that there is in the world. Father, may we make a commitment, may we purpose in our heart to learn more about you and your word and your way each and every day. And Father, we ask for your help in this because this world has so many distractions, so many things that its ruler is trying to deviate us from your way, to distract us from the truth, to listen to other things and to enjoy those And he ends up putting idols in our heart. And it says in your word in Corinthians that behind every idol is the demons that are behind it. So, Father, let us remove every idol that's in our heart. Help us because it's a great battle that we fight each day. And we ask for your help, your patience, and your word to challenge us and be in us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great example. Amen.